Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. is um, the shuttle to the airport tomorrow. Um, several of you are flying out tomorrow. So um, <coughs> after this period of meditation, between that session and the walking meditation, um, if you could just talk to Leanne, um, either with a note or in person, and then Leanne will arrange with Kurt to have the um, airport shuttle scheduled so you can all go together. Um, tomorrow for 2 or 2.30. Did you see the altar? It's perfect. It's so ordinary. And it's perfect. If you look closely, the whole landscape is on that altar. You're on that altar. Maybe one thing you'll notice about the whole practice this week is if you look closely at anything, you find everything. Just before I came in here, I was taking my mug into the kitchen and I had a certain angle where I was watching Karina chopping melons and Lee chopping wood. I had this kind of double image where I was imagining all the melons in Lee's pile, him chopping them with his axe, and Karina chopping the wood with her knife slicing into every piece of wood. Even when you meditate on the breath, 
and you focus on inhaling and exhaling, that's just the beginning of the technique and eventually you forget about the breath. And the inhale and the exhale just happen. They're no longer opposites. Uh, a lay practitioner, Pang Yung, in 780, wrote this. My daily activities are not unusual. I'm just naturally in harmony with them. Grasping nothing, discarding nothing. Supernatural powers and marvelous activity. Drawing water and carrying firewood. Supernatural powers and marvelous activity. Drawing water and carrying firewood. Every morning during work period, I write down some notes for what I might talk about. And usually the first way I, I write notes is I write a poem, but then, you know, I never use the poem because <coughs> I don't want to share it. But today I'm going to share the poem that started my notes today. It even has a title, which is In or Out. Andrea sweeping the corners of the round room. Rami's jacket, another sun. This is how it is, this is how it is. This is how it is. Until it's not anymore. Grant, David, Sebastian, Jill, Julie, fish and dogs. Each with a name, a tail, even boots and snow tracks. Last night I dreamt of a duck with snow boots. Tomorrow another sun, another snow, and new tracks. Every night the wind erasing our names. How do I tell the group that all our tracks are really just heading home? Through words? A poem? By being home? Make up your mind, dog. You're half inside the house and halfway out. Another Japanese poet in 1230 writes this. Spring's myriad flowers, autumn's harvest moon, Summer's cool breeze, winter snow. When useless thoughts don't fill your mind, every season is the best season. Work period is an amazing practice. To start to see that our practice is about the intimate details 
the intimate details of life more than it's really about anything else. It's not about fancy or clever Buddhist or yogic theology. It's not about whether God exists or doesn't exist, or there is or isn't another life waiting for you. The whole universe is created every time you inhale. And everything you experience dies every time you exhale. Your whole life is there in each breath. How you clean, how you eat, how you feel, how you perceive, how you think, and how you handle things is the core of the practice. So the point of all these forms is not to be picky and to get tight around how the bell gets rung and exactly the way your cushion is set up or whether the room is swept perfectly or the incense is right or the candles are right. All these forms are just procedures so that you can feel into your life in a more deep way. So that you can be one with life. And I think a lot of people like to talk about spirituality, about oneness. And then they get on the cushion and they don't really want to be one with everything. They don't want to be one with agitation or one with boredom. <coughs> if you want to be one with a tree, you have to know how to be cold. How to bend. How to blossom and how to drop those blossoms. There's a tree outside my window, a maple tree on the ridge that some of you have been walking on. And um, it still has two leaves hanging on. So I wrote a poem for them. Two maple leaves left dangling, future lovers. How to feel our lives more deeply. How to be one with everything. So when distractions arise, even today, we start to think about tomorrow. It's an amazing thing that happens the second last day of a retreat is people start leaving. I mean, you're here, but you're already starting to leave. And so I encourage you today to really be in time. So much of our lives, we're not in time. We're rushing, we're ahead of the time. 
or we're impatient, we're behind the time. So to be time. For your whole body to just be time. And then this whole practice becomes quite a radical experiment in your vision of your spirituality, which is whether you can really be one with everything. Or if there are some things we need to parcel out and avoid. In her book, Radical Acceptance, Tara Brock says, that the limit of what you can accept is the limit of your freedom. The limit of what you can accept in each moment is the limit of your freedom. You can't be free of something if you can't accept it. breath is with you wherever you are. When I teach little kids, I always remind them that your breath is your best friend. Not the kind of friend that's loyal, and then not loyal, and then happy to see you, and then not happy to see you. But your breath is your best friend. And so you're practicing a kind of devotion where you're devoting everything you experience back to your breath. You devote your thoughts to your breath, everything you feel. All the shoveling and the chopping and the slicing, all back to the breath. The perfect mother. our real home, the current that we live on and in, like a fish in water and a bird in the air. Supernatural power, marvelous activity. Now, when we start focusing on the breath, certain patterns arise in the mind and in the body, in the heart. And most of us, because we're psychological and we live in a kind of psychological culture, when something arises, we tend to focus on the content of what's arising. We tend to look at what's arising and study it and analyze it and try and figure it out. And there are times for that. That's really helpful. There are also times to recognize that the analyzing and the figuring it out is not actually going to solve this dilemma of separation and restlessness.
And in yoga psychology, there's uh, an understanding that on the thread of the breath, our patterns of reactivity show up as knots or little hooks that hook the breath. You can feel this when you're breathing. There are places where the breath gets hooked. And wherever the breath fluctuates, the mind fluctuates. And you'll notice when you follow your breathing that whenever there's a glitch or a fluctuation in the breath, that's usually where the mind gets distracted. It's really fascinating to watch how the breath and mind mirror each other. And our job is to yoke our attention back to the breathing, back to the feeling breath, the breath of feeling, back home in this moment. And then it's said that those knots, which are called grantis, are actually just symptomatics or the fireworks of deeper holding patterns called samskaras that are the physiological, psychological, and cultural holding patterns that we all have. But it's said that you can only know the symptoms. You can't ever know the deeper underlying samskaras with your mind. It's quite fascinating, really, that there are places the mind can't get to. And although your mind can know a lot about your symptoms and about your patterns of reactivity, the, the deeper underlying patterns underneath your angst, underneath your desire to run away, those deeper patterns you can't know with your mind. They're just like intuitions. So I ask you today to to leave the figuring out just for today. Tomorrow night you can start figuring out again, trying to figure out your life. And good luck. (laughs) For several years I made a living helping people try and figure out their lives. And then one day I had this realization, I don't know what's good for people. Who who am I to tell you what to do? But what I can see that sometimes you can't is, and any friend can do this, is to really point out what's good. Usually what's good in us is the part of us that we actually don't see because it's so easy to just get seduced by the negative. For those of you who study psychology, all we study is the negative. The shadow. And sometimes this is how we view ourselves. So, your patterns of reactivity are hungry. Don't feed them. 
on Liz's desk. Some of you have noticed, I've pointed out when you come in for an interview, that there's a, a little note, a post-it note on her desk, and it says on it, Starve the problem, feed the possibility. So, if today some anxiousness or antsiness starts to arise, if discomfort arises, and so does aversion, not feeding it, staying in the body with breathing as the breath settles, not needing to resolve or figure out the root cause, like an archaeologist excavating your thoughts for deeper and deeper thoughts. They're still just thoughts. So practice today in a way that you can become time, so that you're not separate from time, that you're one with whatever you're experiencing. Maybe even one with stillness, white snow, white canvas, white piece of paper, the end of your exhale, that quiet at the end of your exhale. Underneath all of that thinking, Where do all these thoughts come from? Happy, unhappy? I'm happy. Oh, I'm unhappy. I was so happy this morning. So unhappy. This retreat is incredible. Why did I sign up? I'm happy again. How could I be so unhappy when I was so happy? (coughs) These cabins are so beautiful. Straw bale. Why are there three other people in my cabin? I'm unhappy. Where do all these thoughts come from? They all come from conditions. And those conditions come from conditions all the way down. And at the end of the chain, there are just butterflies and snow and fish 
and wind. You can't get all the way to the bottom of those conditions and find out what's at the bottom. Ed Brown once asked his teacher, Suzuki Roshi, what's the most important thing? What's the most important thing? And Suzuki Roshi said, the most important thing is to find out what's the most important thing. (laughs) And for those of you who've studied with different teachers, you know that all a teacher is ever doing is just handing the questions back to you. Sometimes you give me these pieces of paper and I just want to give it back. (laughs) That's why I want you to write your name on it so I know who to return it to. I have a really important question, so I'm not going to put my name on it. (laughs) I'm unhappy. I'm happy. Anonymous. (laughs) You know that all these Japanese poems that I don't tell you the name of who wrote them, they're anonymous. Because they probably were all on little pieces of paper, (laughs) but with better calligraphy. All of the feelings that you have had this week, we have no idea where they come from and where they go. Freud gave us this idea that there's this thing called the unconscious, which makes us feel like there's this cupboard in the back of the brain somewhere. But those of you who meditate, you know there's no such thing as the unconscious. There's unconsciousness. There's no place where all this stuff sits. There's no hidden box in you. Your feelings come in conditions and pass away. They don't stay in you. Your thoughts don't stay in you. Even the deepest forms of memory, though they're in you, they're also not in you. I remember when I was 10 years old, my my best friend was my uncle who was schizophrenic and people always say he's schizophrenic and I hung out with him every day and I used to always think he's not anything that's the only way I could articulate it when I was 10 but now I hear people say you know I'm depressed I'm anxious I'm antsy you're not any of those things those are conditions that are appearing within conditions, within conditions, and then disappearing. Maybe you have friends who accuse you of being stubborn. But you're not always stubborn. My roommate loses her purse once a month. So I said to her, you always lose your purse. She said, I can't always lose my purse or I wouldn't have it. (laughs) (laughs) There are others of you who lose your purse a lot. (laughs) 
just to appreciate each moment without defining yourself in relationship to that moment. To appreciate your life. To appreciate your life. Your life is your life. Appreciate these questions. Who am I? Who is breathing? Who came on this retreat? Where do these feelings go? You don't need to answer any of these questions. They're not answerable. <coughs> Appreciating your life as you are. As you are. 